All right, so if you have a Bible, you can make your way to 2 Kings chapters. Uh, really, we're focused on 22 and 23, and next week will be the last time, um, perhaps ever in my life, I will say, open your Bibles to 2 Kings. So, <laughs> tell you to do that, at least from the pulpit, because it might be a while before we get there. We'll do Chronicles at some point. Um, but October the 31st was Halloween, also known as Reformation Day. And the reason is because 502 years ago, October 31st, 1517, uh, was the birth of the Reformation. And the birth, what you may not know, was largely born out of um, a church capital campaign. So what was going on is in that time, in the 1500s, Pope Leo X was uh, presiding over the Catholic Church, and he wanted to do some reconstruction of St. Peter's Basilica, and he needed funds for that. And so he kind of drummed up an old thing that, that, that had kind of been around for a while, um, not in a sinful, wrong-headed, just, but, but an idea that had come up where basically he, he laid out a long list of monetary costs for various sins. And you could go and do whatever these sins were, and as long as you sent in that monetary cost to him, because he's the Pope, he's got like a direct connection to God, then he would forgive you. Right, so this was called indulgences. All right, so you had this hot-headed fireball of an Augustinian monk, this German uh, named Martin Luther, and when he uh, heard of this, he, he he went crazy over it, and so he basically took ninety-five little sticky notes and nailed them to the church door there in the town that he lived in. We now refer to them as the ninety-five theses, and church doors at the time just served as like bulletin boards for the community. So he put all these things up there, and people took them, and they spread like wildfire because of a brand new invention called the printing press. And so because of the printing press, this, I mean, it went like wildfire, and in the years after, through guys like Calvin and Zwingli, and even on down hundreds of years later, the Wesleys, I mean, just kept going, perhaps we're even in Reformation still, separate reformandas, always reforming, that's what the church is to be doing, but it led to just... A change of the world. And truly, a change of the world. Like Protestantism is part of that. But even beyond that, ideas like constitutional republics, like we have now, born out of ideas from the Reformation. So the Reformation changed the world, changed Western society completely. It can't overstate that. Complete change. But what led to all of that on October the 31st of 1517 was actually a prior rediscovery in Luther's life. And it was the recovery of something that today we refer to as sola scriptura, which is that it is scripture alone that is the actual word of God and is the final authority for Christian doctrine. It's not the Pope plus Scripture. It's not tradition plus Scripture. It's not a political platform plus Scripture. It's Scripture alone. And so ultimately, follow the the logic here, ultimately the rediscovery of the Word of God was the birth of the Reformation. And in a lot of ways, that exact same scenario is what we find in our text today. Under Josiah, they are going to rediscover The Word of God, and it is going to lead to a massive, though short-lived, but hot-hearted reformation there in Judah. And so from that story of Josiah's reformation, in the midst of it, I think there are three massive truths for all of us that a lot of times we either just overlook or we pridefully are like, I got that, I'm good. Known this since kindergarten. We pridefully overlook them. But the truth of the matter is that our life doesn't bear out that we actually get them. And so we need to be reminded of these things again. We need to rediscover these things. And I pray that in that process, all of us in here personally and then corporately would experience a better a bit of a reformation in our own lives. And so if you have your Bible, this is going to be on page 329 and page 330. 2 Kings chapter 22. 
Just a little bit of context, what's going on is uh, the godly and good reign of King Hezekiah came to an end. We talked about him last week. And his son, this evil guy named Manasseh, comes to the throne. And he, go, he returns uh, Judah to their idolatrous ways. And perhaps it's even worse than ever. You'll see how evil he is when we start talking about some of the reforms that come, up, come about here in just a little bit. But evil, I mean truly evil king. But anyhow, as we hit chapter 22, we are introduced to Josiah. So let me stop talking, start reading, and we'll get into these three truths. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah, so this is Manasseh's grandson, Hezekiah's great-grandson. He was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So he had some people around him when he was young, obviously. His mother's name was Jedida, the daughter of of Adiah, of Boscath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David, his father, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And so of all the kings of Judah, this is only said of Hezekiah and Josiah. His life is a godly life. In the 18th year of King Josiah, so he's 26 years old now, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And so basically what he wants to do is some, just some repairs to the temple. 50 years of Manasseh doing different things in there. He wants to repair it a little bit. But verse 8 changes everything. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Almost assuredly, the book that they found was the book of Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy deals a whole lot with like how a kingdom is to be run, what the kingdom is to look like, and those sorts of things. And it's been lost because Manasseh, he reigned for like 50 years. He wanted nothing to do with the Lord. Instituted child sacrifice. He's got cult male prostitutes living and offering religious experiences uh, of sex for money in the temple. Like this is his reign. That's how corrupt it is. So he wants nothing to do with that. So probably some priest took the book, which was supposed to always be by the Ark of the Covenant, according to the law of Moses, took the book and hid it either to protect it from Manasseh, maybe destroying it, or Manasseh didn't want it around. So they stuck it in a cupboard or something. And here we go. Hilkiah finds it. Right? And so he finds it. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, like everything you told me to do. But hey, let me tell you something way more important. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And so what has happened is they had lost God's word. Right? They had lost it. And so our first truth in your notes this morning, simple thing, is just that. Don't lose God's Word. Okay? Don't lose God's Word. And I'm not talking about the 20 Bibles that are out there in the lost and found. Okay? Though, if you're on a budget and you're looking for a good Bible, there are no names on there. Go get you one, take it home, give it away as a Christmas present. It's something good for you. All right? But ultimately, we're not talking about like physically losing it. That's what they did. They lost God's word physically by neglect. In our lives, a lot of times we can, maybe we do, lose God's word practically by neglect. We neglect it. 
Bart Ehrman is an agnostic professor of New Testament studies at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. When I was in seminary there in uh, Southeastern Seminary, <clears throat> debates happened a lot of times with Bart and different professors and whatnot, and he goes around, in the, around the country debating like the historicity of the Bible, how you know, it came to be, and, and all those sorts of things. And in one debate, he pointed out the fact that we, that is, those of us who believe that God's Word is literally breathed out by God, as Angela just read from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he pointed out how we, though believing that, mysteriously don't read it. Here's what he said in the debate. I'm teaching a large undergraduate class this semester on the New Testament. And, of course, most of my students are from the South. Most of them have been raised in good Christian families. I've found over the years that they have a far greater commitment to the Bible than knowledge of it. So this last semester I did something I don't normally do. I started off my class of 300 students by saying the first day... How many of you in here would agree with the proposition that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Boom. The entire room raised their hand. Okay, great. That's, uh, that's great. Now, how many of you have read, and at the time the Da Vinci Code was really popular, Dan Brown's the author of that, so he asked them, how many of you read Da Vinci Code? Boom. The entire you know, room raises its hand. And then he asked him, so, okay, got that. How many of you have read the entire Bible? A scattering of hands. He keeps saying, now, I'm not telling you that I think God wrote the Bible. You're telling me that you think God wrote the Bible. And I can see why you'd, why you'd want to read a book by Dan Brown. But if God wrote a book... Wouldn't you want to see what he had to say? So this is one of life's great mysteries. Mysteries. We don't need an agnostic professor to point out our need to read the word. But friends, if we aren't availing ourselves of the word, we can, we are losing it by neglect. Now, you're in here, you're hearing some of that. That's great, that's wonderful, super important. But also in your own time, don't neglect to feed yourself on the Word of God. Like if we are not students of the Word, we are in danger of being led by what sounds good instead of what is biblical. And friends, sin is deceitful. And it is deceptive. And then on top of that, our sinful souls each essentially have PhDs ourselves in justifying our sin as okay. Or not that big of a deal. When in reality, it is a big deal. Because of who it is that we're sinning against and what it does to you. It's such a big deal that as we're going to see here in just a few minutes, judgment and exile come upon Judah. Israel's already suffered that, and now it's going to come upon Judah. And friends, this is what you and I deserve as well. It should come upon us. We have sinned, and then even those who have trusted Christ for salvation, we still struggle with sin, and so often we seek to not kill it, but to try to tame it, try to play around with it, keep it around as a pet. And so condemnation and judgment and destruction, that's what we deserve. That is what we deserve. But thanks be to God that by grace, through faith in Christ, we don't get what we deserve. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world would be saved through Him. So, friend and sin, there's hope in the gospel. 
It's sin that you struggle with, maybe that you keep returning to. There's hope in the gospel because of the good news of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection in our place for our sins. And this is one of the reasons we need the word. Because one of the things that the word does is it shows us our need for Christ. It shows us who Christ is. As we just saying, show us Christ, see his grace, see his mercy, see his forgiveness, see his gospel. It shows us our need for that. Because in a lot of ways, the Bible, particularly what we call the law, it serves in our lives as like a thermometer. Right? A thermometer can tell you you are sick. But the thermometer has no power to heal you. For that, you need a doctor, right? For that, we need the great physician. We need Christ. But first, we have to know that we're sick. And it's God's word that shows us this. And so absolutely, don't lose God's word by neglect. But also, number two in your notes, don't waste God's word. Okay, number two, don't waste God's word. And what I mean by that is when you do hear it, when you do read it, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, don't push that down. Don't, because it hurts to think about, thereby try to ignore it. It is God's grace toward you when he shows you your sin. And so don't waste it. Hear it. And repent. I mean, look at, back at our text, verse 11. So verse 10, Shaphan just read it before the king. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asiah the king's servant saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me. And for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. To do according to all that is written in them. And so Josiah, he hears the word. It's read to him. He instantly realizes that he and the kingdom are not living out what it says that they've just been going by, because they're not students of the word, what sounds good, what the rest of the culture around them is doing. They've lost God's word, but now he has it. Now he hears it, and he doesn't waste it. He repents. That's the whole like ripping of his clothes. That's what that signifies. It signifies repentance. And repentance, like if you don't know what that word means, basically it's the inverse of sin. It's the reverse of sin. See, sin in its essence is turning our back on God and turning our hearts toward our enemy. Repentance is turning our back on our enemy and turning our hearts to God. Okay, it's a turning from and a turning to. And specifically, like bringing it down a little lower than that, it's where we agree with God about our sin. We don't try to excuse it. We don't try to explain it away. It's where we agree with God about our sin. We grieve it. And we decide to leave it. And we flee to Christ to cleanse it. All right? It's where we agree with God about our sin. We grieve it. We decide to leave it. And we flee to Christ to cleanse it. And listen to all of those elements in the words of David in Psalm 51, a prayer from David in light of his sexual sin with Bathsheba, his sexual assault, possible rape. Here's what he says. Man after God's own heart. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. 
And in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that she sinned, but that from the moment of birth we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. We are depraved. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken, because it hurts when you see your sin, let them rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. And so God's grace pursued and crushed David in love. And return to him the disposition that's to be the mark of all of God's children. A joy-filled but broken and contrite heart before the Lord. And so when conviction comes, feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of your sin and be broken over it. Grieve it. But don't stay there. Yes, agree with God about your sin. Stop excusing it. Stop justifying it. Own it like David did. See it. Grieve it. And then decide to leave it and turn away from it and turn to Christ. Run to Jesus. I mean, think back to the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. He trashed his dad verbally, squandered the inheritance on, you know, all kinds of sin. And then finally he wakes up literally in a pigsty and decides to go home. He wakes up to the reality of his sin and he heads home. Believer, don't ever be afraid to go home. To come home to Christ. God already knows your mess. You're not surprising him. He knew it when he sent Jesus to die for you and he still sent him for you knowing full well every moment of your life and every God-belittling, spitting in your face, flipping you the bird moment, God. And he still went to the cross. And so run home to him. Because as weighty as the grievousness of our sin is, the grace of Christ is infinitely greater. Like in this broken world, we're, we're going to fail. We're going to fail. We fight, but there are days we're going to fail where like David and like Peter, we will betray Jesus. We will deny our Savior and sin against Him. Now, I'll never do that. Yeah, Peter said the same thing three times for the crow. All right, but when that happens, don't run from God and pretend as if you need to clean yourself up, you need to do enough penance, all right, the, you know, pay the, pay the, you know, do the time for the crime, punish yourself enough, and then maybe God will take you back. No, remember the gospel. And it's good news. Jesus paid your sin. That our right standing with God is not based upon our actions. It's based upon Christ's actions for us. His life that He lived, a life without sin. And He died the death that we deserve. Our condemnation. He paid for that with His, you know, His death for our sin. And then rising again, He gave us a gift we can never earn. Forgiveness of sin. 
Do you realize, do you see, do you see the goodness of God towards you in Christ? His grace, His mercy, the grace that He has for screw-ups like the prodigal son, David, me, you. His grace, like if we, it should be shocking to us. But that's what makes grace grace. We don't deserve it. That's the whole point of it. It's what makes the gospel actually good news. Not just kind of, well, it's good news. We don't get what we deserve. We get what Jesus deserves. And that humbles us because we didn't do anything for it. And gives us a broken and contrite heart before God. And so while there are consequences for sin, there's also forgiveness. And we see both on display here. Look at verse 14. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and they talked with her. Now, rabbit trail. Notice here, friends, she's a female. And so everybody look right at me. Godly women have very much to teach us. And a wise man and woman, like when a woman speaks God's truth, a wise man listens to what she says. Like the prophetess here. They're going to listen to her. Somebody's like, well, Joe, what, what about female roles in the church? And the only position in the Bible that is prohibited for a female to have it is the office of elder. You see that clearly. But praying publicly, not prohibited. Prophesying like Hoda here, not prohibited. Being a deacon, certainly not prohibited. You see that repeatedly in the New Testament and all over the letters of the early church. And so listen, as it, as it relates to, to ladies and preaching and teaching and prophesying and being a deacon and even beyond that, for, for all of life, we certainly don't want to permit what God forbids, right? We don't want to do that. But we need to be very careful also not to forbid what God permits. All right, rabbit trail over, back to Hulda, what she says. Verse 15, here's what she says. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. And therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you've heard, because your heart was penitent. And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes, repented, and wept before me. I, have also, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. And so judgment is still going to come on Judah. But Josiah is going to be shown grace because of his humility and his repentance before the Lord. And out of that, all right, though temporary and short-lived, nevertheless, out of this is going, to become, is going to come this remarkable reformation in Judah, which teaches us, as Scotty Smith over in Franklin says, that 
Here's what he says. So often our failures are the gardens of God's new mercies. So often our failures are the garden. Not that we should seek failure so we can find the garden, but when we do fail, they're often gardens for God's mercies. They open our eyes to a new day. They open our eyes to a new way. Friends, again, this is grace. Grace. And so don't waste God's word. Don't, don't waste it. Don't waste the conviction it brings upon you. Don't push that down. Don't waste it. All right? So number one, don't lose God's word in your life by neglect. Number two, don't waste the conviction that it brings. Instead, and this is number three, obey God's word. I told you today was very simple. I know all that. Yeah, but we just don't live it. Number three, obey God's word. Because Josiah's response to God's word is going to be to issue in all of these reforms, all these changes to the evil that Manasseh instituted. But in order to bring these reforms, the people also need to hear God's word, right? And so the first thing he does is he reads it to them. He gathers them all in and reads it to them and then calls them to covenant renewal, a.k.a. rededication, to a new day, to a new way. So let me show it to you. We're in chapter 23 now, verse 1. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. God's people have a long history of the public reading of Scripture. It's all over the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, all over the Bible. All down through church history as well. The public reading of Scripture. And the reason is because this is the Word of God. These are the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? Lord? Where you have the, that, that's what this is. God gives life through His Word. And so because of that, like in here, just practically, in here we want the reading and the preaching and the hearing of God's Word to be at the center of worship. That's why we preach expositionally, to make it the center. What you need is for pastors and elders who know you and love you. There are far better pastors and elders you can listen to in podcasts. They'll be beneficial to you, but not as beneficial as sitting in here because they don't know you, love you, know what's going on in your life and how to apply locally to the things that they're seeing in your life through conversation, Facebook posts, tweets, all those things. Yeah, we read them, we watch them. All those things. What you need is for pastors and elders who know you and love you to read the Word Explain the word, illustrate the word, and apply the word. And that's a basic definition of preaching right there. Read it, explain it, illustrate it, apply it. But it's not the sermon alone that needs to be centered around God's word. It's everything we do in here. We do what we do on purpose. It should be in our songs, it should be in our prayers, it should be in our conversations, it should be in our corporate readings. We should read the Word, hear the Word, pray the Word, sing the Word, preach the Word, and see the Word through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Word-centric, because it's the Word of God. With the goal of all of this Bible centrality being an ever-continuing personal and communal reformation. Semper reformanda, always reforming. Because verse 3, after they read the Word, Josiah and the people make a covenant. And they go to work. Like they start, they, they go after it. Things start changing. So friends, that's the whole point of hearing and reading. It's not just to intellectually know it. It's not just to learn it. Like Alistair Begg says, it's, the learning is for living. I mean, I watched a bunch of football yesterday. It was glorious. It was a good day, right? 
And the LSU-Alabama game was, and I know some of you are Alabama fans, it was an incredible game. I'm sorry you guys lost, maybe, but it was a great game. Like it was, seriously, it was a fantastic game. Those guys, lights out, both sides. And the guys who were in that game and played, like, think about it. it, it it's not enough for them to just know the playbook to, to even memorize the playbook, to organize study groups around the playbook. They've got to play. They've got to run the plays. The learning is for living, not just for knowing. And so are you running the plays? Are you obeying the Lord? Are you striving towards obedience? Are you responding to the word and the conviction it brings with repentance that produces fruit in keeping with repentance? Are you seeking to obey? And so Josiah, in response to all of this, covenants to live for the Lord, and he goes after it. And I'm going to summarize, I'm going to copy a summary. A guy named Dale Ralph Davis came up with this, and it's the way he summarizes everything that Josiah does. He calls it Josiah's 12-step demonesification program. He demonesifies Judah. And so here's everything Josiah did. Verse 4, he removed pagan vessels from the temple. Verse 5, he deposed pagan clergy. Verse 6, he pulverized the Asherah image. Verse 7, he wrecked the male prostitutes' temple apartments. Everything I was talking about earlier, they were actually living in the temple. It was so prevalent. Like that, that kind of stuff had always gone on in Canaanite religion around them. But what had happened, they had lost the word of God. So they looked around what seemed good to them. That's what they did. They conformed to the culture that's what happens when, I mean, conformity to the culture is in the spiritual autopsy of every single fallen Christian. Did you hear that? Conformity to the culture is in the spiritual autopsy of every single fallen Christian. Continuing on, defiled Judah's high places. I'll explain defilement in a minute. Deposing their priests, desecrated Tophet, get this, the place for child sacrifice. That's where they were at. They sacrificed to this God named Moloch. We sacrificed children to a God called personal autonomy. He removed and destroyed sun worship paraphernalia, smashed royal idolatrous altars. He eliminated Solomon's folly. He had started all this. He destroyed the props of fertility worship. He pulled down and defiled Jeroboam's Bethel Worship Center. I'm going to come back to that one. And initiated a purge throughout the northern cities. Like Josiah hears the word of the Lord, sees everything that they're doing wrong, repents, is broken, grieves it, decides to leave it, flees to Christ to cleanse it and, and be changed. And so he goes after it. And some people might label what he's doing here in seeking to eliminate sin. That he, he's radical in seeking to eliminate sin. Sometimes this is what it takes to truly make war on our sins. Sometimes it takes what other people might label radical for a season. Like you, maybe it's for a season or maybe it's for your whole life in order to make war on your sin. And so let me ask some probing questions. Are there things you need to make war on? Are there things in your life that you need to eliminate? Are there things that you, like right now, would covenant before the Lord today no longer to tolerate, entertain, or play around with in your life? And do whatever it takes to fight it. God has something he's propping on every single one of your hearts and minds. And if he's not, that's cause for concern. 
And in seeking to destroy it, like Josiah did here, it may hurt. It may seem radical to others. But it's worth it. Like surgery, they first have to cut you in order to heal you. And so, all these things Josiah did. But I want to show you, I said I want to give you a little more, I want to give a little more attention to one of them. And so look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place, erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. This is the first ever king of Israel. It's split underneath um, Solomon, after Solomon, you had Rehoboam, you had Jeroboam. This is the first ever. So we're going back centuries, 300 years. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place, erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high places he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, which is fertility worship. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, tombs of of the priests of Baal and all this. And he sent and took the bones out of those tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it. That's what defilement is. Burning bones. It's unclean. It's, it is the worst possible thing you can imagine like culturally for them. They burned those bones, set them on top, those ashes on top. It's defiling. According to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. And so, friends, what happened right here is the direct fulfillment of a prophecy 300 years previous, where in 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 2, says this. You don't have to turn there, just listen. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. This is another reason to obey God's word. It's trustworthy. It's true. What it says will happen, will happen. Over and over it proves this. And so Josiah's, he's gone all in in seeking to obey God. But notice that for all Josiah did, judgment is still coming on Judah. Look at verse 26, back in chapter 23 now. Verse 26. In fact, let's read verse 25, where it shows Josiah. He's a godly man. Before the Lord, with, uh, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart. Notice, he turned. He didn't start that way. He turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Verse 26. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. And so what this reminds us, friends, is that ultimately... It's not on us to see culture around us reformed. Now, we fight for things. We strive for things. We seek to be salt and light. We seek what's right. We seek justice. But the outcome of these things is not on us. What is on us is to obey God and leave the consequences to Him. Because at the end of the day, what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15 is true. Here's what he said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
In other words, love will produce obedience. And that order is very important. does not work the other way. Obedience will not produce love. That's just going to, that's a terrible, graceless, godless, merciless religion. All right, so you can work hard, you can do everything that you're told to do, and that will not necessarily produce in you love for God. But love for God will produce obedience. It will. And sure, we're not talking perfection here. But an ever-increasing level of obedience. It's called sanctification. It's called growth in Christ. John Piper, is only he can do, sums it up so well. Here's what he says. Serving God, obedience, without savoring God, love, is lifeless and unreal. Okay? So, serving God without savoring God is lifeless and unreal. But on the flip side, savoring God, love, without serving God, obedience, is phony self-deception. Savoring God without serving God is phony self-deception. And so, friend, calling a spade a spade. When we struggle with obeying God, our problem's not just a discipline problem. It's not just working harder. It's not just that we need to do more One of the underlying root problems is this. We don't love God near as much as we think we do. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Unless Jesus is lying, we don't love God as much as we think we do. But more than that, it's not just that we don't love God, it's that we don't recognize We don't see, we don't get, we don't feel how much God loves us. And if you have a problem with obedience, and we all do, differing levels, but we all do. If you have a problem with obedience, it's that you don't recognize God's love for you. That that John 3.16 is true, that For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We don't get His love for us. We don't get Romans 5, 8 that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear that? God shows His love that while we were yet sinners, Sinners, while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, treasonous, rebellious enemies, that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. When not only did we not deserve salvation, we did deserve hell. Jesus took hell for us and gave us His righteousness. I've been trying to teach this concept to some of my children, and what I do sometimes is I take a blanket and I throw it over their heads. This blanket is the righteousness of Christ and it covers you. Your clothes, or or take off a robe and put on a new robe. Jesus gives you his righteousness. He clothes you. He imputes this, puts it on you. This is what he gives. And when you you get that, or maybe, maybe for us, realize it afresh. In a time of covenant renewal like Josiah has going on here, a time of repentance, rededication, when you get that, it breaks you in the most painful and joyous way imaginable. And His love and His mercy produces in you a joyous and growing desire for obedience. A zeal to stop trying to just, like like the weeds in your yard, just constantly mow them down only to see them pop up. Mow them down, mow them down, mow them down, but to go out and reach down and rip them out by the roots. Whatever it takes. And friends, this call to obedience is not God, it's not God saying you must do these things for my love to be yours. It's like with my kids. Man, my love is just there. 
It's just there. If you are in Christ, God's love for you, it's, it's just there. Your obedience isn't to get it, and it isn't even to keep it. It's just there. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done. And so on the basis of that, if you have repented and trusted Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, then God's love for you can't be changed. Hear this good news. It can't be changed. Now, your fellowship with Him, that can fluctuate based upon what you do, but His love for you cannot be changed. It can't be increased when you're like killing it, and it can't be decreased when you're falling all the time because His love for you isn't based on you at all. It's based upon Christ. And since God the Father cannot love Jesus more and He cannot love Jesus less, if you are in Christ, the same is true for you. And so we don't do stuff, we don't seek to obey to get stuff from God. But out of trust in His grace and sheer kindness towards us, and His mercy and His goodness and His omnipotence, longing for His glory and our own good, out of all that, we trust Him. And we walk in His ways. And we leave the consequences to Him. Friends, may this kind of reformation be born in each of us today. Let's pray. Father, thank You that you're, thank you for the gospel. Thank You for the truth of the forgiveness of sin that is found in Christ that we do not deserve, can never deserve. And You have freely given to us just by grace. Father, we thank you for salvation. We thank you that you don't throw us out, you don't cast us aside when we fall again. But you come to us over and over again and pick us up and dust us off and say, go and sin no more. And Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to not neglect your word and, see, and start living our lives based upon what looks good to the world around us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not waste your word when it convicts us. And push that down and stamp it out and rush out of here quickly to get to lunch and so we don't have to feel the weight of what you're saying to us, Lord, but that we would take advantage, we would not waste it. And that we would maybe even today covenant afresh to obey you. And put to death the sin that is in us that's been attacking us. Whatever that may be. Whether, I mean, for each of us is different. But it's there. And so help us to obey, Lord. And we ask this in Christ's name.